This is the Crosspoint Sermon Audio from Carrollton, Texas. How many of you are homeowners or would like to be homeowners? <laughs> Pretty much most of us. Um, and how many of you who are homeowners or would like to be homeowners uh, would love to have like the most majestic view you could ever imagine? Say, you know, your favorite thing is the mountains. You look out your back windows and there's just these glorious mountains. Or you like the beach and you look out the back window and there's just this beautiful white sand beach. How, how many of you would love to have a view like that from your back porch? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you this. How many of you would be willing to pay additional in taxes just to have that view? <laughs> One of you, two, a couple of you would be willing to pay extra in taxes. All right. Well, uh, I would suggest you move to New Hampshire. No, in, in New Hampshire, the officials in New Hampshire have decided that all those majestic panoramic views of which the state's famous for um, is worthy of being taxed. Yeah, they're not priceless as you might think. Uh, in fact, they consider them bonus features of a house. They're similar to having a, a, a finished basement or um, you know, an attached garage. And tax assessors are putting dollar amounts on these spectacular views. Um, and this in turn requires homeowners who have those glorious views to pay through the nose in property taxes. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, first one is a guy named Bennett Nicholson. Uh, now, he, lives, he lived in Win Winchester, New Hampshire, had this beautiful house that he bought that he planned to live the rest of his life in, and it had this view over the uh, Connecticut uh, River Valley. In uh, 2002, his house was assessed at uh, about $98,000. Okay? That's... In 2003, this so-called view tax went into effect, and his house that a year before was assessed at $98,000, was now assessed at $273,000. Yeah. He, he promptly sold and moved to Canada. <laughs> uh, another gentleman uh, in New Hampshire was a, a retiree, and he complained about these assessed taxes, and essentially the taxes doubled his, his, assess, uh, his assessment. His, his complaint was this. He doesn't own the view. He can't control the view. Uh, it's increasingly obscured by pollution. And to top it all off, this man is legally blind. <laughs> and yet he has to pay extra in taxes just to have this view that he can't even see. Now, of course, ultimately the problem with such a view tax is that beauty, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder. That's right. So what one person sees as beautiful, another person might see as taxably beautiful. What one person sees as ugly, another person might see as taxably beautiful. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> They're going to get you every time. And I think the same is true in our Christian walk. Uh, some people uh, see a beautiful view of faith and followership, opportunity and community. Other people see the Christian walk as an obligation, drudgery, a long list of do's and don'ts. So the question is, which one are you? I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. But how you see God affects the way you see everything else in life. No, that's okay. <laughs> but yourself too, that's part of it. How you see God affects the way you see everything else in life. Um, 
And I think that the author of Ephesians understood that. We're in Ephesians. We're back on our, on our uh, lectionary track here. We're in Ephesians. And today's text, I think, is evidence of that. Uh, you heard the, it uh, in the, the video there. Now, for, at first blush, it just seems like a kind of a nice prayer or a nice sentiment. Uh, in fact, as I was reading this week, one translation titled it simply, Paul Prays for Spiritual Strength. It's a nice, nice sentiment. However, I think upon further investigation in this text, we see a heart that yearns for God and desperately wants his readers to see beyond their present circumstances to the grand vista and breathtaking view of God's love. Now, uh, I'm going to reread this passage for us, uh, and I'm reading it out of the NASB. Um, Sean, sorry I didn't do the message for you this morning. I know, I know. Um, yeah, I was told a long time ago that the NASB is uh, one of the most uh, literal translations of the Bible, and uh, I think this might be a kind of an interesting way to kind of work through this. So I'm going to read through it, how the NASB uh, decides to uh, parse it out for us, and it goes like this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, I don't normally do this, uh, but again, this kind of seemed appropriate for this week. Uh, we're going to kind of go through this uh, a little more verse by verse than I normally do. Um, so it's going to be kind of a fun experiment for me as well as you guys. <laughs> so hang on, enjoy the ride. So we're going to start off uh, 14 to 16. I guess we're, we're going to do a couple of uh, verses at a time. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. All right. So he starts off with, for this reason. Now, we have to wonder, well, what is the reason? What, what is the reason that he's referencing here? And so you take a step back, right? And you go to uh, 3.1, Ephesians 3.1, and, and you can follow along in your version live event or in your hardcore Bible. I like that. I know. It's old school, man. I love it. Um, and if you step back to verse, uh, if you step back to 3.1, Paul says this, for this reason, again, he's, he's, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Okay, so, so we've gone from 3.14, where he says, for this reason, back to 3.1, where he says, for this reason. So again, what's this reason that he's even starting this little prayer for us? And Paul opens this chapter, he begins with the intention of praying for the Gentiles. He makes an opening statement, and then for the next 13 verses, Paul delays his prayer as he continues to talk about the divine mystery of the body of Christ, which he talked about at length in chapter 2. So you actually have to go back to chapter 2 where he's talking about how amazing it is that, that God has fashioned the body of Christ together. But I think it's interesting that when he starts chapter 3, he begins to speak and, and almost gets overwhelmed by the message that he's been tasked to deliver. And so he, he, he starts in 3.1, and he, he kind of has to go back and say, it's all these things that you have to try to understand. And so then when we get to 3.14, he picks back up with the prayer. And when he, when he goes into this prayer in 3.14, he says, um, 
says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I think for a lot of us, bowing in prayer kind of makes sense, right? We're kind of used to that idea. You know, you, you tell your kids, you know, go kneel next to the bed and say your prayers to Jesus, right? Um, and I was reading this week, because that's what I was supposed to do, <laughs> uh, about this idea of, of kneeling in prayer. Now, Paul was a Jew, and I read that according to the Talmud, um, a person of holiness and stature is discouraged from kneeling in prayer unless he's sure that his prayers will be answered. So this was an uncommon stature of prayer for a, for a Jewish uh, person to take on. But I think it, it exemplifies for us how important to him this prayer is. You see, it's a prayer that, that he's sure that God is going to grant to the Gentiles. It's far beyond a normal prayer. It's, it's, it's a fervent prayer, right? He's, he's so desperately wanting this for, for you and me, essentially, for the Gentiles, that, that he is praying this prayer to God. And what about this God that he's praying to? So he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Again, as I was reading this week, I came along a lot of commentaries that talked about this particular phrase. And I didn't exactly understand why they kept pointing this out. Because to me, okay, so the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth you know, derives its name it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But they all pointed out that the word that's used for father is pater, and the, words that, the, the word that's used for family is uh, patria, which actually have the same root, the same root. And they all pointed this out, and they all were trying to, trying to tell me something about why this is important. I didn't get it, and so I contacted our, uh, our I guess, distance uh, linguistic, uh, <laughs> Christy Overton, and um, she kind of helped me out with it, and she said this. She said, the phrase is difficult to properly translate or convey in English, okay? Essentially, the idea is that Paul is calling attention to these related words, this pater and patria, this father and this family, in order to say something about God's overness. Okay, that helps clear it up, right? <laughs> uh, so she breaks it down a little further for me. She goes, so every family, patria, has their own family name. So in her case, it was Overton. But every family also has God's family name, pater, making God the head of the household or the patriarch of the universe. God is over all of us. How amazing is that, right? God has over all of us. I just, I think that's beautiful. And then it goes on and it says uh, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit, through his spirit in the inner man. This prayer of gifting of strength in the spirit it's according to God's riches, right? It's according to his great power and his great love, which has abundance upon abundance. It, it goes far beyond our comprehension or even our imagination. Uh, and out of that abundance, Paul is praying that we will be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. So let's carry on. 17 to 18, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So for what reason? Why is he praying this prayer for us? He's praying it so that Christ will dwell in our hearts. Do you ever think about Christ dwelling in your hearts? I mean... When we become Christians, when we become saved, we invite Jesus into our hearts, right? What does it mean that he's dwelling? Again, I was doing a lot of reading this week, and um, several people pointed out that um, dwelling is 
big. Like it's one thing, you know, if I invite Sean over to come hang out at my place, right? And, you know, you're going to come over and I'm probably going to let you go into the, you know, the living room, maybe the kitchen, the bathroom, depending on how long you've been there, right? <laughs> but, you know, eventually you're going to leave, right? You're not, you're not staying there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what they're suggesting here is that Christ dwells in your heart, that he, he lives, he moves in. Some translations even say that he moves into your heart. He, he, he's got his spot on the couch, right? He's a refrigerator friend. He goes over and gets what he wants. He's got his own room. He's putting up pictures on the wall, right? He's dwelling, he's living within you. And for a lot of us, I think we invite Jesus in and we give him a little room. Maybe he's like Harry Potter where we put him under the stairs, you know? And that's his room. That's where he gets to stay. And he comes out when we, you know, Sunday mornings, we'll bring him out, put him back away. Maybe Wednesday night, we bring him out, right? But most of the time, he's just kind of there. But he wants Christ to dwell in your hearts. And that you may be, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. All the saints. All the saints. This particular phrasing is talking about this, the thisness, this coming together, that Christianity is not a solo sport, right? It's done in community. We talk about that a lot here. You probably get tired of hearing us talk about it, but it's so true. You, 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 you can't comprehend Christ's love unless you're in community with his people, unless you're in community with his body, that's what it's talking about. You need to be here. And then I think it's amazing that he says, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And that's the end. Like he doesn't, he doesn't say the breadth and length and height and depth of what. He just kind of stops there. <laughs> he goes on to, to the, next, the next passage where it says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So I think the obvious expectation is that it's, he wants you to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. But it, again, it's like he, he gets so overwhelmed with, with this message that he has to deliver. He gets so overwhelmed with what it means and, and God's love that he just, he, he starts and then he's like, I know I got to talk about this too. You know, have you ever had that? Like, I feel like I do that all the time. <laughs> I feel like I confuse people because I just, I get involved and they're like, oh wait, but I got to tell you about this first. I think that's amazing that Paul here is, gets caught up. So in 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So the Greek word here uh, that was translated know in this verse is genosko. Genosko. It's a verb expressing experiential knowledge. And the Greek word that was translated knowledge here is gnosis, uh, a noun denoting the, the act of knowledge. So simply put, Paul was praying that, you would, that we would experience the love of God that goes beyond mere knowledge of it. Do you experience God's love? I mean, really experience it? Or do you just kind of know about it? You're aware that God loves us. Yeah, he died on the, you know, Jesus died on the cross. He did all these things, but it's just kind of there. Or do you experience God's love? That experiential knowledge that really getting into you, letting him dwell in your heart sort of thing, leads to being filled with the fullness of God. Now, the word filled means to be full, which seems kind of obvious, <laughs> or filled to the fullest, 
right? It's, it's, it speaks of total domination. So if somebody is filled with anger, right, they're, they're dominated by hate. Uh, if a person is, is filled with wicked desires, they're dominated by lust. So the person who is filled with happiness is dominated by joy. And, and so to be filled with the fullness of God is to be dominated by him. To have, to have him so into you that he's, he's overflowing. He takes over every part of you. It eradicates all self and simply fills with God. And I think, you know, given the fact that, that we talk here about being agents of restoration, if we're filled with the fullness of God and that's overflowing out of us, that fullness of God, that, that love of God should be spilling over, over out of us into the world around us. This is a broken world, and the only thing that's going to fill those cracks and crevices that are in this world is God's love. And that's what we get to do as Christians, as agents of restoration going into the world, if we're filled with his love. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Sean, this one is for you. Message. All right. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. So we went from extremely literal to extremely non-literal, but that's okay. I know, right? Yeah, exactly. Eugene Peterson in his message uh, paraphrase puts it this way. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. And he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. I don't know about you, but that excites me. This idea that, that we serve a God who, who can do way more than we can, can fathom in our heads. And he wants to do it through us. He wants us to be his vessels who accomplish these, these amazing things in his world. Doesn't that excite you? Doesn't that, doesn't that make you want to go out and do for him? That view of God, to me, is breathtaking. I love it. I absolutely love it. Which leads to Paul's ending on this particular piece. It says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Paul recognizes here at the end that this is all about God's glory. It's not about us. It's about his glory. It's about everything is to him and for him. We sing, you know, God of wonders beyond our majesty, right? The universe declares your name. We get to be a part of that. To him be the glory in the church. That's one of the great ways that we get to glorify God. Again, I'm coming back to it. Thisness, right? Community, being together, which is kind of hard when we're all spread out. But <laughs> I was going to have you all come together to make a point, but I'm not going to worry about that today. This is important. We glorify God by what we do here, right? We glorify God by coming together. The songs are great. Brian does a great job in leading us. And the band, they, they work hard in making sure it sounds good and flows well. And it's all good. But it's all for his glory. Right? I love how our team, none of them are like showboats. They come in. They, they love to help, us, help lead us in worshiping the Lord. And I love that from them. So I appreciate that, guys. Thank you. In the church, in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate glorification of God. It's his son with whom he is well pleased. We get to glorify him. He glorifies God. We all glorify God. It's a great big love fest. 
that excites me. To all generations forever and ever, amen. It goes on for eternity. These present circumstances that we have, whether, you know, I, I wake up this morning and I get the phone call, hey, there's no water at the space, right? Or whatever it is, there's things going on that seem like, oh, this is terrible. But you know what? Ultimately, God's going to be glorified forever and ever and ever. And all these little petty arguments that we have, all these petty problems that we have in our lives, they're not going to mean a thing because of God's glory. So I mentioned at the front about a man who was complaining about the view tax. For him, the view that he had held no value. He literally could not see what all the fuss was about and saw no reason that he should pay for it. For some of us, our view of God is similar. I mean, we give lip service to being thankful for what he's done, and that's about it. Or we come in on Sunday morning, and we sing these great songs, or pretend to sing these great songs, or don't even pretend to sing these great songs. And maybe we complain. We complain about the so-called tax for this view. You know, we complain about um, attending church, or we complain about reading our Bible. We complain about the fact that we have to tithe. Complain about staying in community, or, or being around fellow believers, whatever it is we want to complain about. I would suggest that many of us are blind to the view that we actually have. And ultimately, the tax has been paid for us to have that view. And all those other things that we do, all these other tithe or worship or community or whatever, that's us getting to enjoy the view. It all depends on how you're looking at it. Paul realized this when he was in a jail cell. Paul was a prisoner when he wrote this letter to the Gentiles. Paul, from his dank, dark cell, could still see a beautiful vista of God's love. He could see beyond the walls to God's love. Can we see that? We're free people, right? You all are going to walk out of here. You're going to go to your homes. You're, you're going to go out to lunch. You're going to enjoy the beautiful day. You're going to experience all these blessings that God lays on us. Do you see them? How you see God affects the way you see everything else in life. What's your view look like? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time this morning. I pray that, um, I pray that we can see your love everywhere we go. There are miracles all around us. It's a privilege to see them. It's a privilege to see you working in this world. It's a privilege that we get to be your vessels. And I thank you for that. And I pray that as we leave here today, we remember the view that we get of you, that we remember that even through the ages, Paul was praying for us, and you're working in and through us, and you can do things far beyond our imagination. And I just pray that you will be with us and help us to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been the Crosspoint Sermon Audio from Carrollton, Texas. For more information about our church, visit www.crosspoint.com.